Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. Throughout the pandemic, we also saw a mass exodus of restaurant and retail workers. But where did they go? Many of them went to work in the marijuana industry. There is now an estimated 321,000 workers in the legal cannabis industry. Workers here are saying that they're finding better hours, benefits, and more opportunities to advance. For more on how these marijuana jobs were a refuge for retail and restaurant workers, we'll speak to Abba Batarai, national retail reporter at the Washington Post. So it turns out that the legal marijuana industry became an early refuge for a lot of retail workers, restaurant workers, hospitality workers who were laid off at the beginning of the pandemic. Many marijuana dispensaries were deemed essential early on, and so they were one of the few places that were open and hiring. And at the same time, you know, over the last 25 years or so, we've seen a number of states, the majority of U.S. states, actually legalized medical marijuana and moved toward recreational legalization. So this is a booming industry where there has been a lot of demand. One of the things that somebody, you know, a lot of people always want when in their workplace is opportunities for advancement. And that was one of the things that a lot of people said that in this industry, since it is uh, relatively young, I guess, comparatively, there were those opportunities uh, versus uh, some of the other jobs that they had. Exactly. That's a common complaint for retail, restaurant and hospitality workers in particular that I talk to is that there's just no pipeline to advance. But the cannabis industry, since it is so new and since it is sort of, you know, so far at least made up by a patchwork of mom and pop shops and a few national conglomerates, but you don't have like the big tobacco companies sort of dominating the space in any way. So it is a lot more sort of on the ground opportunities to advance. One person I talked to who started working at a dispensary last year has been promoted three times already. Like she started just as a sales employee and now she's a manager who manages a staff of nine, does all of the purchasing. And so it's just a very new industry where there are more opportunities to move up. Yeah, I think uh, in that case, uh, she manages a a lot in sales of $500,000 that the dispensary is making. I mean, that's a lot of responsibility very quickly, you know. One of the things, too, so sales of legal cannabis grew 60% last year to $19 billion. They say that could be $41 billion by 2025. So sales are booming there. But back on the worker front, you know, workers' rights groups are saying, well, we need to start unionizing these workers. We have to act now to protect these jobs before things get out of hand, like they did, exactly. with, the, like they did with the restaurant and retail space. Absolutely. That is what unions and worker groups are saying, is that this is a great opportunity to make sure these jobs stay well-paying jobs with great upward mobility. And the comparison that they kept making was that this could become sort of like the manufacturing industry used to be. This could become a pipeline to very strong middle-class jobs. One of the things that, you know, a lot of the workers talked about, too, was favorable working conditions. You know, being out of the grind that they used to be in, you know, it's a different pace there. And, um, A lot of the managers are, you know, a lot nicer, things like that. You actually spoke to somebody who used to be a pharmacist for 15 years at Walgreens. He left to work at a marijuana dispensary, finds the pace much better suited to him. He did have to take a pay cut, though. Yes. And actually, I was surprised by the number of retail workers that I talked to who had taken a pay cut to work in the marijuana industry. Just a dollar or two. In his case, it was about 5%. But they said the trade-off was just 
incomparable, that they were working much more manageable hours. They were sort of valued more. They felt like they had more of a say in their day to day than being just a cog in the machine. You know, not everybody is finding that industry, the marijuana industry, particularly beneficial to them. There were a few people that said it wasn't for them. They tried it out and, and you know, moved on to something else after. Yeah, exactly. And of course, like with any with any industry, there are great jobs and there are crappy jobs. And so I think people obviously have this mixed experiences. But one thing that I heard time and again, particularly from brown and black workers, is that they, they felt sidelined. The legal cannabis industry is predominantly white. And I think they felt like there was a disconnect there between the folks who were in charge and maybe some of the workers on the ground. On the federal level, Cannabis is still illegal. Uh, how did uh, you know these workers moving into the industry, how did the marijuana dispensary employers, how did they figure all of that into it? That's a great point that you make. And I think that's sort of a big overarching, overarching theme that you kind of just keep going back to. The workers, the employers, everybody is very cognizant of the fact that what they are doing is still illegal at the federal level. And, you know, one labor economist that I talked to actually made the point that he thinks this is one of the reasons that employers are being extra careful to make sure that the working conditions are good. They don't want any scrutiny. They don't want any upset employees. And so they want to make sure that they can prove that these are good, stable jobs. And that's why, you know, as I mentioned earlier, uh, workers' rights groups want to start unionizing just to protect all of this stuff. But that in- this industry is growing so fast. I mean, just talking about how many states now have medical and recreational use of marijuana. I mean, this is kind of the trajectory that we're heading towards. And, you know, people, the conversation has always been there about uh legalizing it on the federal level, you know, we still have to yet to see if, if that'll ever happen. Exactly. And I think that's what everybody is sort of looking to around the corner, but they're also saying, you know, we have to do a lot to lay the framework for a great industry and for good long-term jobs now before this becomes a free-for-all at a national level. Abba Batarai, national retail reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. There has also been a liquor shortage caused by the pandemic, and it still continues in some states, and they're having to resort to rationing liquor supplies to keep up. Problems at every step of the supply chain are affecting liquor stocks. Some producers are having a hard time sourcing glass bottles, the cost of importing liquor is high, and there's a shortage of truck drivers hampering delivery. For more on why some states are still short on liquor, we'll speak to Joe Hernandez, reporter at NPR. Well, there's about a zillion reasons for this, and they started back probably about a year, a year and a half ago when the pandemic began. If you remember back then, in some states, stores shut down for a while, and then there was sort of a crush to get liquor, and they ran out of stock. And then since then, we've seen these supply chain issues in all parts of the economy, really, but it's affecting the liquor industry as well. And It goes from anything from being unable to get glass bottles to the cost of shipping going up internationally, a lack of truck drivers, or just a lack of raw materials to be able to make the liquor in the first place and keep up with demand. Now, I live in California. Uh, Just anecdotally, I don't think I have seen it here. So what states are we looking at that are having this problem? And specifically, is is this an issue for liquor stores or are grocery stores also affected by this? I don't want to oversell it. It's not like you're going to walk into a liquor store and there won't be anything on the shelves. Right, right. Um, I get you. But this is happening across the U.S. in different states. So North Carolina, New Jersey, Vermont, Utah. 
And what's happening in some of these states that have state-run liquor sales is that the states are actually saying, okay, we're running low on Buffalo Trace bourbon, so we're only going to allow customers to buy two bottles at a time, say. And to your average consumer, maybe two bottles per day of bourbon is probably not going to be what they're buying anyway. But this might affect your smaller bars and restaurants or even larger ones that tend to buy in bulk and need to have this stuff on hand for consumers when they come in to get it. As far as the question about grocery stores and other vendors, it really depends on the state and what they're doing. Like I said, in some of these control states, the state government itself makes the decision. But in states where liquor stores are privately run, it might be up to those stores themselves or liquor store chains to decide whether or not they need to ration certain products over others. I mean, there's so many rules all over the place. I've been in certain states where, you know, a Sunday is like a dry day or something like that, or, right. or, or even certain rules, right, where you can only sell liquor at liquor stores and grocery stores and supermarkets can only sell beer and wine. So there's all sorts of rules all over. They're different everywhere. So, you know, that's why I was asking uh, to see, you know, where the problem could be centralized. You know, you did mention a couple of the reasons why there's shortages. Bottle sourcing is one of them. Uh, truck drivers, you know, labor shortages all over the place are having a big issue. But the time that it takes to make the liquor itself, that's also one thing. When we're talking about supply and demand, this past year was such a time of high demand. You know, if you burn through some of your, you know, excess bottles that you might have and whatnot, you know, you can't just make more on a dime. You know, the aging process for a lot of this liquor is what also takes time. And this is a huge one because unlike in some other industries where maybe you could ramp up production quickly with liquor, you can't exactly do that. I mean, you could distill a bottle of liquor, but then you have to age it for eight years or 10 years. So the liquor that we're all drinking now was actually made, uh, it could have been a decade ago that it was made. So distilleries, while they're trying to ramp up production and expand their operations, we're talking about liquor supplies that are going to be some years down the road anyway. In addition to the aging, it's also the raw materials, which I mentioned earlier. So there is a global shortage of agave, which is used to make tequila. So places that are, are making tequila, you know, it's not like they can go, go back five years and plant more agave. That was what one analyst told me. So you're basically stuck with what you have now. And if what you have now isn't enough, then you're not going to be able to make enough for the demand that's out there. Yeah, you, you mentioned Buffalo Trace, uh, you know, very popular brand. They're doing a $1.2 billion expansion at some of their distilleries, but even still, it's going to take a few years just to catch up to the demand. So, you know, to your point, you know, you just can't ramp it up that quickly. You know, obviously the effects, they all trickle down to the consumers and whatnot. Are we seeing price increases related to any of this or is it just the shortages? How's that playing out? You know, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I think that some of the the restaurants that may be unable to get the liquor may have to make some changes based on the shortages. But I don't know about whether the liquor stores themselves are actually charging higher prices or, or not based on demand. Joe Hernandez, reporter at NPR. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Finally for this week, could a DNA test help you have a better drug experience? There's an emerging industry making at-home testing kits that look at different genetic traits that could help people understand how they'll react to cannabis or psychedelic drugs and find the right dose. For more on all this, we'll speak to Tiffany Carey, 
consumer reporter at Bloomberg News. You know, these are still in a really early stage. Most of these companies have just started selling them. I think it's interesting they're already being sold, you know, even though a lot of these products aren't really legal um, in some jurisdictions. And, you know, a lot of the companies that plan to sell them are still really developing them. But what you see is, you know, a consumer desire to know, you know, might I be one of those people who, you know, is not only going to get a bad trip, but might be predisposed for some sort of lasting psychosis or or schizophrenia. And then from the company side, you know, they really want to know as they do their research, I think, you know, can they weed people like that out? You know, I totally understand that being a pretty legitimate concern, right? Nobody wants that bad trip. Nobody wants a lasting psychosis, especially. I mean, that seems horrible, right? But people just don't know. A lot of times the dosing is an issue, right? People take too much and they screw themselves up. So, but let's talk about a couple of these companies because there's many Mm -hmm. of them and many of them operate on different levels. But uh, let's start off with uh, one that's called Endocana Health Incorporated. They have a home saliva testing kit that sold for $199. How does that work? What are they looking at when they're testing you? You know, they're looking at these genetic markers um, that may predispose someone to, you know, maybe having a bad reaction. Um, Some of the scientists I've spoken with, however, say, you know, the science is still out. The jury is still out on some of these. Uh, I think, you know, I'm not sure with this company in particular, but a lot of these companies may one day also plan to take data now that they have, you know, as they develop a database of people who have these genetic variants and see what their outcomes are as they take these substances in the future. And what is the output like, though, when they test you and they give you results back? Is it kind of like 23andMe or something? You know, it gives you like a link to a website and you can kind of go from there. Or do they have people that go over the results with you? It's similar. It it is very web-based. One of the ones I went further with was the Entheon biomedical test. um, And there you can get a dashboard of your results. So it will show you, you know, which genes you have a certain variant in that might predispose you to something. And then there's a link you can follow that sort of takes you to the scientific studies that potentially link this to having some sort of reaction to certain drugs. And that's an interesting one, too, because obviously, as you mentioned, they're looking at a bunch of different genetic markers, but that one takes a look at five different factors. So it looks at liver enzymes to see what your ketamine metabolism might be, serotonin and a couple of other things. What is that looking at? Just nailing down, nailing those down. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these companies are looking at how people metabolize drugs and whether there are certain genetic markers that show, you know, someone's likely to be a slow metabolizer and therefore, you know, the dose should be changed that way. Uh, And of course, the science is still evolving on, on that as well as these other genes that influence how the brain processes dopamine. So, you know, there is one gene, the AKT1 gene, that the National Institute of Drug Abuse has said, you know, this gene, a certain variant in it could be linked to higher risk of psychosis in people who use marijuana. So that's an example of the kind of thing some of these companies are testing for. Now, obviously, there's all sorts of uh, risks involved with all this. As you mentioned, you know, a lot of these drugs are still illegal in many, many places, most places, I would say. But there's still a lot of investors that are willing to back some of these companies or even help develop these types of products. Yeah, I mean, I think the hope in the psychedelic space is that this isn't going to be something recreational. This is going to be something that takes an FDA pathway. These drugs eventually, um, the companies are hoping they will get approved for certain things. Going uh, back to uh, marijuana, you know, we talk a lot about metabolizing and all that stuff. You know, there's other things that take effect. You know, this kind of that broader discussion of the science and how well some of these work. 
not everybody is necessarily sold on just the genetic markers because with things like marijuana, you know, foods that you eat also impact Mm -hmm. how the effect on the body happens. Absolutely. I mean, the people who look at the cannabis um, factors have said, look, we don't even understand what all the different cannabinoids and terpenes and, and different things in the plants do. And then each plant has, you know, variations in it, much less being able to connect that back to, you know, one person's gene. And then you have to factor in things like how hydrated is the person? What time of day is it? Um, and, you know, there's anecdotal stories about things like mango juice changing the way you process these things. So, you know, it's a very complicated endeavor. There's still a lot of research yet to be done, I think. Yeah, that's definitely one I had not heard of before. I guess mango has a reputation for enhancing the effects of cannabis. I, 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 never, yeah. I never heard that one. So um, so what are some of the other companies that uh, you profiled that are, that are working on, on these types of tests and, and looking into this? Well, Atai is a really big company, um, and they have something in one of their divisions. Um, and interestingly, you know, their chairman said, look, maybe we don't want to, to weed bad trips out. A bad trip is not always a bad outcome. It's something some people, you know, find rewarding when they go through these psychedelic experiences. Um, and another company is MindMed. And, you know, there's also still very early stage. They're not selling any kind of consumer test kit at this point. But they're looking quite broadly at a bunch of different things, you know, maybe getting information from things like your step counter, pulse rate sensors, sleep patterns, and then trying to determine, you know, what drugs might help people with certain conditions and at what dose. No, I'm curious if, um, you know, you know, medical studies, people that are conducting some of this stuff, obviously it's hard with these drugs that are, you know, not legal, but if they would want to get into, get in on the action of this stuff too, because, you know, it might help them further their studies. You know, I always go back to it with marijuana, right? It's still Mm -hmm. legal at the federal level and so hard to do so many studies with it on that front. You know, I'm wondering if they would want to be involved with some of these companies as well, just trying to get as much data as they could. Yeah, I mean, this is something that could really broadly help the whole psychedelics sector and cannabis as well. If you can sort of weed out, you know, who some of these people are who have a predisposition for a bad experience or some sort of lasting effect, you know, if those people aren't, you know, they're able to separate those people out during the clinical trial phase, that obviously helps the research of the drug. Um, And then if these things are on the market, that could help give consumers more confidence. Before we go, I just wanted to go back to that one little thing that you said about one of the people you spoke to that you know, maybe having a bad trip is not the worst mm. type of outcome. <laughs> why Why did they go in that? You know, I, I, ayahuasca comes to mind <laughs> when I think of that because people have violent reactions to it, but then they go right. through that phase of personal introspection and whatever, you know, that's what uh, mm-hmm. people that do ayahuasca kind of go through after that, right? But you have to go through the ringer before you get to that point. And so that's kind of the thing that comes to my mind. But, you know, what, what, did, they, what did they say about that? Yeah, I mean, look... People can have all sorts of bad experiences and then interpret it the way you do, say, a bad nightmare, right? And you draw some sort of meaning from that um, and sort of come to terms. You know, a lot of these, a lot of the research for these things is being done for conditions like depression or PTSD, where there might be some trauma in the person's past. So if you don't go through the bad experience, there's a question of whether you're processing trauma, I guess. Tiffany Carey, consumer reporter at Bloomberg News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media, at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.